Greetings and welcome to the latest edition of the AMSSM Sports Medcast, produced in collaboration with the BJSM. I'm your host, Dr. Devin McFadden, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Gary Ho, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine, the University of Virginia School of Medicine, and Georgetown University School of Medicine, and Fellowship Director at Inova Fairfax Family Practice Sports Medicine Fellowship, who will be discussing the topic of peripheral nerve hydrodissection, both here and at the 2022 AMSSM annual meeting. Greetings, Gary, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Devin, my pleasure. To start off, could you please define peripheral nerve hydrodissection and discuss the theory behind its use? Sure, so to define it, I think it's important to kind of look at the actual terminology and definition. Perineural implies that it's around a nerve, Hydrodissection is actually an interesting term. If you actually look at the term itself, hydrodissection means using fluid to be able to separate tissue planes and fascial planes. And it's not necessarily uh, married to nerves. You can hydrodissect tendons, fascia, uh, other structures, ligaments, etc. cetera. Uh, but in our case, we're using hydrodissection as an actual method or technique. And when people often use the term hydrodissection, they're actually often in the in the uh, context of peripheral neuropathy. They're often using it as shorthand, because hydrodissection is a method, but it's really it doesn't really speak to the ends of what you're trying to accomplish. Many times, what we're trying to do is actually release the nerve from surrounding soft tissue tethers or scarring or entrapments, in order to improve the physical condition of the nerve. So, in that respect, hydrodissection is actually insufficient. So. When I actually actually describe what I'm doing, the full name of the procedure, because I use it, I do it under ultrasound, is ultrasound guided needle percutaneous hydrodissection adhesial lysis neuroplasty, which is a mouthful, but it actually includes all the aspects of what we're trying to accomplish. Um, so hydrodissection for short. So uh, the goal of that longer procedure really is to use fluid introduced uh, by needle injection under guidance to uh, separate the nerve from its surrounding soft tissues to the end goal of creating an anechoic under ultrasound, fluid completely surrounding the nerve. And also uh, the second end goal is to actually observe a change in the nerve shape. The cross-sectional shape of, of nerves often especially when they're entrapped, is often in a flattened kind of oval or elliptoid sort of shaped. After a successful hydrodissection, the cross-sectional shape of a nerve should be more circular and round. And so those are sort of the two endpoints. And, uh, and I think hydrodissection is a bit of a uh, continuum. Uh, it can be small and localized to a small area, or that halo of fluid can be extended to a, um, uh, a cylinder or a tunnel around the nerve. Uh, for a longer segment of the nerve being hydrodissected. So that's sort of hydrodissection in its most basic definition. So it sounds like it's pretty broad, and I, I appreciate you allowing me to call it just hydrodissection uh, rather than the official term, because that was quite a mouthful. But in terms of practice, how many sites are you typically injecting? How many points are you entering the skin to be able to inject an entire nerve? And is there a specific inject it that you're, that you're using that's been shown to be more effective? Yeah, no, those are great questions and very interesting as there's a lot of uh, potential discussion points here. 
I guess that the, in, in a general sense, as far as uh, how many needle points or how many entry points, it all depends on the situation. I think, um, you know, no two patients are alike, no two nerve entrapments are alike. In a case like something that's a little bit more limited, say carpal tunnel syndrome, where you're really only needing to hydrodissect a small segment of the nerve or just one focal area of the nerve, it's going to be one needle entry point. And uh, so as far as one, one segment, and usually kind of a smaller volume compared to say the longest hydrodissection I've ever did was actually from superficial peroneal all the way up through common peroneal sciatic all the way up into the deep gluteal space. So that was very, very long. So obviously required multiple needle sticks, multiple runs, uh, lots of volume of injectate. And as you can imagine, you know, the volume of, of required injectate to accomplish those two end goals of putting fluid around the nerve and the um, change of the shape, cross-sectional shape of the nerve, with that larger volume, the concerns of adverse effects of the injectate definitely become very real, especially when you talk about local anesthetics and local anesthetic systemic toxicity. So the choice of, of injectate becomes very important decision point in pre-procedure planning. And there are a number of different injectates that have been used and different components and certain mixtures as well. Uh, local anesthetics, cortical steroids, normal saline, and simple sugars such as dextrose. And probably the most commonly used injectate by volume nowadays is going to be 5% dextrose. And the rationale behind that is one, it is isoosmolar, and two, it carries a very favorable side effect risk profile as compared to local anesthetics. And then three, there is a rationale to using simple sugars such as 5% dextrose or 2.5% mannitol uh, when it comes to addressing potential pathophysiologic processes in the entrapped nerve. There is some thought that altered receptor activity such as that in TRPV1 receptors are part of the biochemical pathophysiology of these problems, and that the introduction of simple sugars such as 5% dextrose in in vitro situations that has demonstrated an alteration or modulation of, the, of those receptors. So the thought process is there's a rationale to using it in addition to its favorable uh, adverse or risk profile, and that's why we often use it. As far as studies comparing it, you know, one could argue that normal saline or perhaps slightly diluted normal saline may also be relatively safe and carry a, a low risk profile. But when it comes to efficacy, people have also often questioned about which might be better. And there is limited data on this. And there's a, uh, I'll quote a study and I'll quote this uh, in my talk at, it, at the AMSSM annual meeting as well. There's a study in 2018 comparing 5% dextrose versus normal saline for a carpal tunnel hydrodissection and the 5% uh, dextrose outperformed the normal saline in a, in a statistically significant way. And so there is some clinical data to support the in vitro rationale for using 5% dextrose. Other injectates that are considered local anesthetics, of course, in larger hydrodissections, there's a concern with local anesthetic systemic toxicity. So we definitely need to consider keeping the uh, dose of that uh, below a certain threshold. And one thing I learned a couple of years ago is that the dose response for it may be variable for, from person to person. Um, and this is sort of an area of interest in that, you know, we talk about 
the blood brain barrier, there's a blood nerve barrier as well. And perhaps uh, certain populations of people may be more at risk for local uh, anesthetic systemic toxicity than others. We don't have great data to be able to really predict who those are, but definitely makes us a little bit more careful about our injectate choice when it comes to hydrodissection. Corticosteroids, you know, that, that's an area of, of controversy as to what it does and what, uh, whether it's helpful or not. And also compared head to head, there's some data suggests a 5% dextrose may be favored, both from a safety perspective, but also perhaps in a uh, efficacy uh, standpoint too. And then lastly, most of the time we often see combinations of injectate solution and that hasn't been studied, but but there's a lot of those choices are made based on some of the scientific rationale. Wow, fascinating. Thank you for that, that explanation. There's a, a lot to unpack there, but it sounds like 5% dextrose is at least a, a safe starting point. This obviously sounds like it can be a pretty heterogeneous procedure depending on site, the type of entrapment, things like that, and probably pretty hard to study. But you did mention carpal tunnel, and I imagine for some sites, there's some some data out there. So can you kind of go over what the data is on the efficacy of these types of procedures and what sites most, might be most amenable to uh, successful treatment? Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely happy to. You know, by and large, when you look at the actual evidence for perineurohydrodissection, the vast majority of the data that's out there surrounding carpal tunnel syndrome. There's some, there's some other studies and reports, and certainly there's a litany of case reports and smaller case series. Uh, retrospective reviews, looking at other nerves. But when it comes to level one data, like double blind or triple blinded, you know, RCTs, level one data, the vast majority of the studies are uh, for carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, and there's actually pretty good data. There's, there's studies comparing carpal tunnel uh, hydrodissection under ultrasound compared to sham uh, injections and shown efficacy with ultrasound guided perineural hydrodissection there. There's studies uh, supporting larger volumes, in theory at least, uh, smaller, you know, uh, more limited studies, but larger volumes around nerves. And so there's definitely a lot of studies supporting that in carpal tunnel. Other nerves, there's some, there's some data as well, uh, ulnar nerve around the elbow, so-called cubital tunnel syndrome. Uh, there's some good information on that. Interesting, you know, the application of perineural hydrodissection for, of the uh, saphenous nerve for chronic medial knee pain after total knee replacement, that there's some good data on that as well. And of course, I think that there's, you can extrapolate some of this for other nerves. As far as what's, what's uh, amenable to hydrodissection, I think it really depends on the operator's comfort, skill, experience, and more importantly, the knowledge of the anatomy of the actual the nerve of interest, and of course, nearby at-risk structures like vascular structures. And if the operator is comfortable and confident with good needle and probe control under ultrasound and experience with the local anatomy to avoid pitfalls, that I think that this procedure can be very generalizable. I have a slide in my talk where I say, which nerves can we do? And pretty much any nerve you could see and that you can reasonably, you know, know the, the anatomy to be able to avoid pitfalls and maintain the op utmost safety. Uh, but the vast majority of studies is going to be uh, with carpal tunnel syndrome. Okay, great. I appreciate that. I know you're very involved in medical education. How do you go about training your 
medical students and fellows in in an advanced procedure like this. You you mentioned obviously the the fact that any nerve can potentially be treated with a procedure like this. But how do you assess their proficiency in attacking certain nerves? Do you take it nerve by nerve and say, I'm comfortable with you treating this, but not this? Or and along those lines, if you had a physician that was interested in picking up this skill, uh, who's already completed their training, how would they potentially go about doing so? That is a great question. And this comes, uh, this comes by you know, my desk very often. Um, the first thing is I, I divide this learning the skill into two main components. First component is learning, learning the actual procedure itself agnostic of any particular nerve. That would be, and of course, that's going to require learning the ultrasound skills as well as the needle guided skills. And then the second big component then is going to be learning uh, nerve specific applications of perineural hydrodissection, which is in a lot of ways, a lot more time intensive and difficult. Uh, so from a, I'll answer it in two parts. Uh, for the actual procedure itself, separate of specific nerves, that's going to require some good training in first on musculoskeletal and neuromuscular ultrasound, uh, because we're using ultrasound as our guidance modality. So they're going to have to learn some basic skills of how to handle an ultrasound probe accurately and with good control, and be able to also pair that uh, with a one-handed operation of needle guidance. So that's the first thing. And so you, uh, I think at a, a, um, uh, somebody I'm training is gonna have to demonstrate not just good control and dexterity uh, with on the ultrasound probe and its manipulation, but also good control and dexterity of the needle guidance. And that includes both in-plane and out-of-plane needle guidance, which we'll talk about at the, at the, uh, at the conference as well. Once they've demonstrated good, reliable, reproducible control and accuracy of both the ultrasound imaging and the needle guidance. And that includes uh, manipulation of the syringe, the, the plunger, all these different aspects. Then we turn our attention to applying to specific nerves. Often I find that it takes about, you know, I, I think about 20 to 30 average uh, procedures before I can and with, with practice, uh, where a typical resident or fellow can demonstrate uh, those reliable uh, ability to control both the ultrasound probe and the needle. Of course, some people are going to get it much faster than others, and some will take much longer, but average of about 20 to 30 procedures. And then on the other hand, learning specific nerves. Um, some nerves are, quote unquote, safer with the number of pitfalls and at-risk structures uh, less than, say, other nerves. And so uh, that will depend on, on that as far as how many procedures that I would want to observe and train a resident or fellow in a particular nerves hydrodissection before I can say that, hey, I'm pretty confident you, you can do this reproducibly in a safe way and an efficacious, efficacious way. And that's going to also depend on the nerve. So for example, carpal tunnel has its own unique set of pitfalls. Superficial peroneal is one that's a little bit safer, uh, relatively speaking, versus um, going after something really risky. Uh, for example, hydrodissection of the prevertebral fascia in the neck, but the purposes of, of putting 5% dextrose around the cervical sympathetic chain is one that where there's going to be a whole lot more at-risk structures, a lot more anatomic variability, 
and certainly uh, one that's going to require a lot more experience and practice. And even in somebody who's already uh, experienced in using perineurohydro dissection for peripheral nerves, once you start getting into a place with that degree of anatomic variation, such as in the anterior neck, they're going to have to go, you know, essentially go back to school in a way and get practicing, learning the anatomy, scan a lot of necks. And, and uh, I have a minimum of at least 30 or 40 observed cervical sympathetic blocks in a safe and controlled setting. Uh, before I can say somebody is, is uh, adequately trained for that. And, and as far as, you know, doing that procedure, I highly, highly recommend practicing the procedure on cadavers and phantom models before trying it on a live patient, especially in these higher risk areas such as the neck. But yeah, so that's sort of a summary of some of the training and practice that I would recommend for people to undergo. And that's going to vary. Like I said, some people get it a little bit more skilled or gifted or things come more naturally than others, but it's a very learnable skill. It just requires time and practice. So yeah, hopefully that helps. Yeah, I think that's a, a great approach. Are there courses or ways to get exposed to these types of skills for people who have already been through training? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I didn't have um, much ultrasound or, or, or these types of procedures in my training. And so I learned, learned all this afterwards. And when, when my mentor and I were first venturing into this world back in 2008, there were very few, if any, courses available. You know, a lot of time has passed and thankfully uh, a lot of things have changed and there are at least pre-pandemic and I'm starting to see some of this pop back up now, which is very welcome in that there's a, a, lot, a number of potential courses that people can go to to learn these skills. And I think they all have something to offer. Every course director and every course that gets put, put on, it has their strengths and weaknesses. And, and I think that different courses will do certain things well. And so, yeah, so without being too, married too much to a course, as I recommend to, to the listeners here, I think there are a lot of courses out there that, that can be really good. But again, there's, there's diagnostic courses uh, looking at ultrasound anatomy, the sono, uh, sono anatomy of nerves and muscles and musculoskeletal structures. And then there's needle guidance courses, uh, so, uh, many of which are cadaver courses. And I encourage everybody to look those up and, and be very open with the, the people who put on the course and let them know what you're looking for and what you're hoping to accomplish. That's great advice. Thank you for that. Finally, any any other tips or tricks for people who are interested in adding this treatment modality to their toolkit or anything else you want to summarize before we let you go today? Sure, absolutely. You know, at the beginning of my of the year when I when I teach fellows and residents and and I'm describing certain procedures or perhaps a patient comes in in need of this procedure and it's too early in their training so I perform it in front of them trying to make it a teachable moment. It often is very daunting and very intimidating and I think it's important to realize that, you know, all these skills are multi-layered, uh, where there's multiple different components that are coming together at the same time. And that's the reason why it seems so complex and risky and may seem unattainable for people, but you have to start somewhere. And so every, you know, I didn't get here doing these skills all at once. It's building the building blocks and then putting it together over time. And that, and it's very attainable if you break it down that way. So the first thing is just grabbing the ultrasound probe and learning the anatomy. And little by little, you know, people can add these skills together 
in a synergistic way. And before you know it, you'll get there. So I guess that's my parting pearl is that everything seems difficult, but you know, it's the same skill that my fellows learn in their second or third month of fellowship. And it's basically, it's ultrasound, in plane, out of plane, in plane, out of plane. It's, it's the same procedure. It's just nuances and anatomy. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate that, Dr. Ho. I think that's a, a great approach. And I can attest to the fact that seeing you operate a probe is pretty daunting to begin with, but, uh, but you do a great job of training your fellows and, and bringing us along slowly. So I thank you for that. Uh, I'd like to thank you for sharing some of your valuable time with us today. And you, the listener, I'd like to thank you as well. Uh, if you're interested in hearing more from Dr. Ho and dozens of other leaders in the field of sports medicine, I'd encourage you to consider attending the 2022 AMSSM annual meeting, which will be held April 8th to 13th in Austin, Texas, and delivered both in-person and virtual formats. For more information, visit annualmeeting.amssm.org. Lastly, we hope you found this time valuable and that you'll join us again soon for the next episode of the AMSSM Sports Medcast. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not represent the official policy or position of the AMSSM, INOVA, the U.S. Army, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government.